Hey everyone, it's Mark. This week's episode is sponsored by Littlefoot Coffee. They are my favorite coffee company. So if you head on over to littlefootcoffee.com, you can use promo code MARK, M-A-R-C, and save 10% off your order. Or if you really like coffee, sign up for their coffee subscription service and save 20% off your first month. That's littlefootcoffee.com. Use promo code MARK. And on to this week's episode of the Think Differently podcast. From Chicago, Illinois, this is Think Differently a show that explores people who are challenging the status quo and how they do their work and choose to live their life. From doctors and designers to entrepreneurs and artists, hear the stories, learn the insights, and see what it takes to think differently. Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome back to the Think Differently podcast. This week, we are getting smart. We talked to a doctor. Specifically, we spoke with my best friend, Dr. Jay Rosen, who is a clinical neuropsychologist. If you don't know what that means, you will very shortly. Jay, aside from being my best friend, Jay is one of a kind. He just has a really unique way of looking at the world. And in this episode, we really actually dig into the science of the brain, why people suffer things like dementia, Alzheimer's, traumatic brain injury. We talk about PTSD and the impact of trauma on your ability to actually function at a highly cognitive level. Uh, if you met Jay, you would think that he should probably be on the beach surfing, which he most likely is. But the fact that he performs at such a high level, helping families navigate and diagnose things like dementia and Alzheimer's diagnosis, it really is a special gift that he has. So from my best friend in uh, San Diego, California, from Chicago, Illinois, all the way to you all, enjoy this episode of the Think Differently podcast because Jay Rosen, Dr. Jay Rosen, thinks differently about trusting what you believe in. What up, Jay? What up, Mark? (laughs) Marky Mark. I have to let people know you're my best friend, right? So like, this is pretty fun that we actually get to do a podcast together. So thanks for making the time, man. I'm going straight face. No (laughs) jokes. No no jokes. I'll try to. I I think if if either one of our wives or families were to know that we were about to have a somewhat professional conversation, uh, they would not believe us. But I'm I'm really glad you came on because ever since I met you, you know, like it was funny. I think like we're we're kind of like twins, like the Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito twin. I'm obviously the Danny DeVito twin. You're the Schwarzenegger. But like when we first met, I think it was at a Halloween party, you know, and and uh, I just recall that night because I was dressed as Lance Lance Armstrong after he let himself go. So I was in full spandex. And your buddy, Tim, who's, you know, well over six foot tall, was Abe Lincoln. And we have this iconic picture of us going for a jump ball at a Halloween party. And then here we are all these years later. You are a doctor. I am not. And we're on the podcast. Was that Danielle Tobias's Halloween party or her friend's Halloween party? Or was it that was at- I, I, No. Yes. Yes. No. Uh, yes, it was. We, but what? we ended up back at your place on Fremont. And that's where the picture was taken. So wait, was that the party that what did Melissa dress as? Do you recall? Oh, that's a good. Oh, you went as Kevin Federline and Britney Spears, just okay. to just okay. to let people know how old we are. <laughs> yes, you were Kevin Federline. She was Britney Spears. <laughs> I did have a nice chin strap uh, beard. You real did. Thin you, beard. You, you were K Fed for sure. Off. Yeah. Um, Besides uh, being Dr. J. Rosen, Dr. J, as I always like to call you, let let folks know what kind of doctor are you? Yeah. 
I am a PhD and uh, I have a PhD in clinical psychology and professionally I call myself a clinical neuropsychologist um, and uh, yeah. What does that mean? What, what does a clinical neuropsychologist do? Uh, on a day-to-day basis, I am trying to figure out why people are having problems with their memory, concentration, attention, um, and I do that through interview and then administering psychometrically validated tests of memory, concentration, attention, executive functions, language abilities, um, wherein we can compare people's performance to age, education, and even culturally matched peers to determine whether or not um, problems with thinking are showing up on tests. Um, And uh, typically the reason why patients are seeking my care is, um, you know, I primarily work with older adults. Um, About 60% of my practice involves uh, diagnosing um, uh, differential diagnosis of, of, of memory disorders and about the other 40% um, is a mix of assisting people with rehab from acquired brain injuries, which are like strokes and, and traumatic brain injuries. Um, you know, day in, day out, I'm getting referrals from neurologists and, and primary care doctors once in a while from psychiatrists. But the primary question is, is why is my patient, you know, complaining of, of of problems with their thinking, um, what can we do to help, um, what can we do to help them recover from their brain injuries. Um, the, the, I mean, being on the outside looking in, Jay, like, you know, so here's an interesting take. Being a type 1 diabetic, which I've been for over 30 years, I feel that I have a really different lens as the way I look at the human body and the way that normal people with normal endocrine systems function versus myself. And so I really don't take for granted the fact that some people could be at homeostasis and feeling good and everything's firing right, whereas like that's that's just a moment-to-moment challenge for me. But the brain from again my outside looking in the brain is such a complex networked intricate thing and so i guess as we start to dig into the work that you're doing like are there other kinds of brain doctors that you have to interface with like and i say brain doctors like i'm a moron but like you know like that's a good question so I know there's different parts of the brain and memory probably sits in mm-hmm. one part of the brain and you're focusing on that, but like, who are the other people that you might have to refer to, talk to as you're doing your work? So um, typically a referral will come from a neurologist and neurologists are MDs that you know specialize in diagnosing and treating diseases of the brain. I also work with a lot of uh, neurosurgeons um, and uh, I get some pretty interesting referrals from neurosurgery. So one of the things that I help neurosurgeons do is to kind of figure out where lesions or scarring in the brain um, is based on performance on tests so that they can plan epilepsy surgeries where they will remove sections of the brain. Jesus. Um, right. So that's, that's pretty insane work. Um, uh, and, and pretty intense. Um, so we'll, you know, not only help them to figure out where these lesions are, but to help them figure out whether or not the patient is an appropriate candidate for, 
you know, such a in, invasive surgical procedure. And, you know, th these lobectomies are done only in, um, in, in, you know, with something called, um, uh, you know, basically with epilepsy uh, that can't be treated with um, medication. Um, and uh, chronic seizures, you know, basically are neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative. I should be able to say that. Hey man, you're the clinical neuropsychologist. Seriously. I say that pretty yeah. well. So wait, I let know. me ask you something though. Let me ask you something about this. So like, the are you diagnosing, you're researching, you're diagnosing, you're assessing, and then maybe again, if there's a surgery that has to take place, somebody else does like the surgery, but like your main work is like, when people's brains are not functioning as they should at the optimal level related to memory loss and or like misfirings, they come to you and you help kind of with that diagnosis or analyzing what's happening then diagnosing. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say that's safe to say that's a good way of describing it. So, you know, somebody's having problems with their thinking abilities They go in and see their GP um, and their GP can send them to me directly um, or they'll get sent to a neurologist. Um, and we're using, you know, tests that allow us to compare, you know, individuals to the average individual. Mm -hmm. um, and based on their performance on their tests, you know, we can tell whether or not their, you know, scores on a memory test um, are within normal limits um, or, you know, in a range that is below expectations given their age. Um, and then, you know, we have research related to how diseases like Alzheimer's or, um, you know, uh, Parkinson's disease uh, affect mm -hmm. the brain. Uh, and therefore, um, we have research essentially on how, 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 what the profile is associated with each one of these disorders. Um, neuropsych testing is actually very, very sensitive to the earliest stages of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of my primary referrals is for um, figuring out whether or not somebody is showing the prodromal stage of Alzheimer's or like the earliest manifestations, detectable manifestations of Alzheimer's. Um, and neuropsych testing actually outpaces um, uh, imaging studies and, and uh, there are no, you know, basically blood tests or, or genetic tests that are as sensitive and specific related to the presence of early Alzheimer's as, as some of the tests that that we, we administer in a, in a typical neuropsychological battery in my clinic. And are those tests, like I hear you say tests and memory tests, like when you think about the continuum of like maybe paper and pencil tests and on the other end of the continuum is some like crazy invasive brain test, the stuff that people come to you for, where's, where's that at? These are, we're just observing behavior. So essentially this is a paper and pen, you know, my, my, <laughs> um, the, the technicians, I don't administer too many tests anymore. The technicians that administer my tests, essentially they'll read a list of 16 words five times. Um, and after each trial, they'll record how many words that individual can remember. And then 20 minutes later, the um, individual who's taking the test um, is asked to, to, to try to recall as many words as possible um, from that 16-item uh, word list. Um, so it's just a paper and pencil test. Um, you know, these are, are, are core neuroscience tests that have been kind of brought from the lab into, um, into the clinical setting. Um, these are not invasive tests, although, you know, to a certain extent, you know, neuropsychologists will rely on data from, I guess, more invasive neurological tests. 
but there really aren't too many invasive neurological tests. I mean, yeah. you're talking about imaging studies like MRI. Um, I guess the most invasive um, type of neurological test would be like, you know, like a spinal tap where the doctors would examine cerebral spinal fluid and conditions um, like, you know, um, in, in certain degenerative conditions or would, it, it would, you know, look and um, see how somebody's behavior changes after they extract some cerebral spinal fluid in a condition called normal pressure hydrocephalus. Um, but those are, you know, the physicians order, you know, those are more invasive yeah. tests. You know, I just use some of the data that's derived from those tests to correlate it with my findings to mm-hmm. kind of come up with a diagnosis. Um, so there's two things, because that word diagnosis, again, being a diabetic, I remember when I was diagnosed. A diagnosis, like we throw that word around, and even nowadays you you hear, you know, I used to be in public education, kids getting diagnosed with ADD, people, other people saying there's no such thing. Like there's the di- the word diagnosis like means a lot. And if you're having to diagnose somebody as a doctor, like that's that's got to be a pretty heavy thing to do, right? To tell somebody, hey, you're kind of showing early stages of dementia. Like what, what, what's that part of the work like? Like, do you, are you kind of like one of these, like, I've known you forever. You're my best friend, but like, are you able to just be, you know, kind of black and white about it? Well, like what's, what does it look like to tell somebody there's a diagnosis? Well, every clinical situation is different and every family situation is different. And there are families that will have a preference for hiding information. Um, but for the most part, I'd say 95% of the time, I'm pretty direct. And that's what I recommend to my patients as well. I'm not one to hide. Um, I think honesty is important. Um, and honesty facilitates good healthcare. Um, and I try to be as honest as possible. Sometimes it's really hard. Um, and I'll, you know, feel really sad. Um, sometimes I'm amazed at the resilience of my patients. Um, you know, but I've seen you know, some pretty sad things um, in terms of diagnosing degenerative disorders and uh, Alzheimer's and very young people, people who are in their 40s. Um, yeah, it's like if you break a leg, you could fix a broken leg. But like, it, these are diagnoses that, I mean, again, outside looking in, the, the words you've used, dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, those are things that I, to my knowledge, people don't come back from that. This is like the start of, I mean, it sounds so morbid, but it's it's like the start of a, a degenerative decline, right? Yeah, and about, I'd say 60% of my patients that would match their experience, about 40% of my patients, you know, I'm catching them after the most tragic days of their life, you know, a car accident or a stroke, and I'm watching oh, them shit. get better, yeah. uh, and I'm watching them get better, which, you know, is fulfilling, and there are miracles that you'll see, too, of people who have, you know, severe traumatic brain injuries or, you know, you know, massive strokes. Um, and you're amazed at how well they do on our tests. Um, so sorry, go ahead. So there are times, you know, when it's not, you know, completely sad and that even when it is sad, you, you know, it's, you can deliver the, you know, families already kind of know, they already know something's going on. And when you tell them, sometimes it's a relief. Um, I'm always amazed at how resilient families are and patients are and, um, you know, and that's something I'll comment on, um, and I'll give them some praise for that and, you know, that adds some levity to the, to the setting. Um, 
when when you well there's two things you said i want to like zero in on for sure so one is that you're sometimes you're seeing people after the most these traumatic incidents car accidents some sort of an incident that caused a brain injury but i also think that things like alzheimer's and dementia those things are not necessarily caused by a, an acute uh, instance, right? These are things that are just, they happen, right? And the other word that you use is healthcare. So are there things, I mean, if, dude, it's 2020, right? Like we're, we're not like, uh, we're not cutting off legs, like in the old days, you know, at a whim or putting leeches, you know, to like suck disease out. Well, it's 2020. What are things, or are there even things that people can do from a healthcare perspective to, eliminate or reduce the likelihood of some of these things we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, so the research really related to preventing degenerative disorders, if you have risk or, or even if you don't have risk, um, is, uh, you know, the research really suggests that the, the, the factors that limit risk for developing Alzheimer's are like excellent sleep, you know, six to eight hours of, of nightly sleep, limiting stress and limiting sadness or depression. And when those things are occurring, getting, getting help for them, eating healthy. Um, you know, there, there's some debate about what is the diet that's going to prevent neurocognitive declines. But, you know, we know that eating healthy and reducing what's called allopathic load, um, you know, or metabolic load um, is important. So having a heart that's very healthy and exercise um, is really important as well. Um, you know, things like socialization and keeping an active mind are important um, throughout life. Um, and those so are keeping an active mind, is this like, um, you know, kind of, again, like from, I'm, I'm, I'm like trying to think back to like my, my high school biology class, but like there's certain parts of the brain, they do different things, right? Mm -hmm. And so, Really, you know, it, what I think I hear you saying is like having an active brain might be doing creative things, doing strenuous things, doing active things, reading and reflecting, like really utilizing your brain. Yeah, you know, I think that part of the human system, it needs challenges. Um, and I think, you you know, one of the things that I see in my patients who create challenges for themselves, like I'm going to continue playing guitar um, or I'm going to keep skiing until I'm 70 or out here, it's keep surfing and skiing and golfing until I'm <laughs> 80, you know? Um, and they, you know, update their goals, you know, that are kind of, you know, as they, as they age, their ability to engage in those activities may change and they update their goals. Um, but essentially, you know, what happens is, uh, I think that that's the, 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 the challenge always has to be there, you know, so mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, I don't know, like, start, you know, starting, it's just the challenge has got to be there and it can be so many different things for so many different people. So, so there's just like general health things that we can do to kind of potentially mitigate the onset of, of things like dementia, Alzheimer's, and these are somewhat research-based, right? These are things that we should be doing. They're healthy things anyway, right? Like a life of challenge yeah. is a really good life. Like, right. you know, don't, don't, don't go into a state of, you know, uh, apathy here. Um, but the other and thing that... I physical challenges too um, are really important and we have to be able to update our goals 
associated with both physical and intellectual challenges as things change over time. Like a lot of my patients mention that Alzheimer's is kind of a terminal diagnosis. That is true. Um, but there are still people who experience the vital challenge themselves in some ways, yeah. experience the vitality of life, even in the context of that disorder. And what we'll see is they'll stretch out their well-being. Um, they'll, they'll have, you know, um, the, the degenerative process will move slower. Interesting. Interesting. Are, are there things right now, again, like it's 2020, I can only assume we know a lot more about the brain than we probably ever have before, like, right? So what are some of the things that like we know now that maybe we didn't even know 10 years ago about the brain? It's, you know, that's a, so 10 years is not a lot of time in science. Um, so I don't know if I could necessarily, we're updating knowledge. Um, you know, I've, I, the, I'd say that, you know, incremental changes occur in 10 years. Like for example, this is pretty technical, but you know, this the score in the 16th percentile on a memory test 10 years ago, wouldn't raise too much of a red flag for me, but now the research suggests that, you know, maybe we should be paying a bit more attention to that low of a score. Um, you know, I, but in terms of like, we overall are, you know, in our, you know, we're not Ramon and Cajal were the two scientists that learned how to stain nerves. I don't know if I even said Cajal's name right um but i don't i mean they might have been like spanish or italian scientists somebody should look this up and fact check us um i mean this, let me tell you this whole thing should be fact checked but i mean that was like that was like 120 years ago 150 years ago hey wow. fact checking is that's all i do you know like fact checking yeah. is so important even when you're an expert i think experts actually fact check themselves and i doubt there's you know the need to fact check I think my expertise has told me that I need to fact check more than that's what everybody you know, should be doing. No matter what, no matter what your line of work, you should be fact checking. You should be checking your stuff. Of course. But getting back to where we're at with brain science, not far, you know, we're maybe in our, you know, just coming out of our infancy. Interesting. Um, you know, I don't, you know, there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions in neuroscience. Um, so let me ask you this only because and, I thought I thought you and I talked once. Uh-huh. And oh, yeah, it was after the NFL. And again, you know me, I am not a big sports guy, but um, I think actually, Jay, for anybody listening, Jay once gave me the most backhanded compliment that I carry with me to this day. And it was after we, when we first became friends, you invited me to come to a basketball game with you and your buddies. And I showed up and we balled. And I, I think around, we took a quick water break and you looked at me, you're like, you are the most unathletic looking athletic guy that I know. Dude, you're, you're the chippiest ball player I've ever met. You're, a, you're what's called a pepper pot. Very chippy. You dude, you got Mark, you got moves, dog. You know it. Dude, I know this, dude. I'm you like, if like, if like Allen Iverson and Jason Kidd had a, had a, had a, had a, a, a baby with a rabbi, it would be me. That's like what it would be on the, Yo, but anyway, anyway. You should what, what, somehow incorporate uh, something about you with you skating. Show everybody, show the world how good of a skater you are. Oh, I'm man, getting, I was at the skate park two nights ago, man. 
Yeah, you don't know. Some... If you don't know, I ride all the time. There, um, wait, I give you an entree to splice in some uh, video right here <laughs> of you riding. You better get that shot tonight. <laughs> I have to get like my old fisheye lens, you know, get it out. Yeah, um, do the whole skater so, thing, skate vid. So this Dude, is this is this I've is seen, what I was talking about. <laughs> I've seen several professional athletes with injuries from things like skating, skiing, soccer, football. Well, yeah, that's what I was actually getting at is the NFL a few years ago, they released this big thing that said like a huge percentage of football players have CTE, right? And then CTE was all over like the, it was all over the news. Everybody, nobody can play sports because of CTE. And I remember you told me something that blew my mind. And you said the people that are actually more at risk for CTE are not, I thought you said it this way. It was not the football players, but it was people that ride like jet skis where their neck is like bouncing all around all the time, like back and forth. Cause I thought you had said that it's not the impact. It's not like one impact it's prolonged over time. Like these multiple kind of like jarring of your brain. Did I remember that? Right. You know, it's, it's just, it's, those are very, those are scientific questions that people like Robert Stern at, 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 um, uh, Boston are, are trying to answer. Um, and, you know, I, it's interesting, the, you know, one of the studies that struck me the most is the highest, um, I saw a study once that said, it showed a, a really high susceptibility to brain injury among uh, girls soccer, um, a really high prevalence, um, uh, you know, and it was, these studies basically will look at factors before a soccer season and after a soccer season and the, you know, brain injury factors, you know, were really high, um, higher than, you know, than, than certainly I'm comfortable with. Um, so is there higher brain... incidence of it now, or is it just that we know about it more now so that it's kind of like that whole coronavirus? We have more cases because we're testing more. Do we have a, a more, more cases of this of or things like dementia alzheimer's you know traumatic brain injury and cd because we're aware of it and we were testing it yeah i mean it's not like the incidence rate is higher but the detection rate is higher so but i mean i think that the incidence rate you know is what is what it is um you know i think that with cte though the 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 science is 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 really you know in its earliest stages um and, you know, I, we know that it's not good to get hit in the head. Um, we've known that since Parkinson's pugilistica, which was, you know, identified and somebody fact checked this uh, in, you know, the 1900s or, or late 1800s, you know, when they started noticing that aging boxers would get, you know, Parkinson's and Parkinson's is a degenerative disorder. Um, you know, we know that it's not good to get hit in the head. We also know that there are some people that can take a lot of head punishment yeah. to their head and they still test fine on neuropsych, you know, that they live long, full and healthy lives. There's some research, you know, certainly that suggests that, you know, even a single mild traumatic brain injury, and this is coming out of the VA, um, can result in a, you know, well, it, it increases your risk for, you know, um, the early onset or, you know, age advanced neurocognitive problems. So uh, that, that study showed a, you know, a slight effect um, from a single brain injury in terms of uh, age advanced uh, thinking problems. Um, but that effect was measurable and it was significant. Hmm. 
you know, so it's like, gosh, you know, I still surf. I surf this morning. I still ski. And these are, you know, head injury. My kids skate. You know, these are head injury risky things. Um, I have patients that ask me, should I play football? I'm like, you know, I, I don't know if I'm ready to tell them no, um, but I'll, I'll, you know, definitely educate them. Um, Do you... Um you had mentioned something around the VA and I know that you spent a lot of time at the VA down there and you've worked a lot with the military. Um, and for people that, you know, prior to, um, you know, Zimni, my best friend being in the military, I didn't have a lot of exposure to the military. I just, you know, I, I always say that if the Marines do a good job, you never know they exist because you don't have to worry about it because they're out there kicking ass every day. So we can just go and get a mocha latte or whatever. But um, once you yeah. gain exposure to the military, right, once you gain a personal connection to the military, I feel like there is a whole new world that opens up to you. And I know that you've spent a lot of time at the VA and you did and worked with a lot of, of people over there. What What's going on, you know, kind of from a military lens with traumatic brain injuries? What are we seeing there? You know, it, um, the, it's when I was at the VA, we were in the, uh, the, the, it was the height of, you know, the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and um, you know, the rate of, of concussion was really high um, because of the nature of that conflict, you know, the rate of, you know, of exposure to concussion or concussion risks is, is definitely higher in, in, um, people who are in the military. Um, and, you know, I think that it's likely that, um, the, you know, that other, um, that other, you know, eras, other, other conflicts, you know, in the Vietnam conflict and, you know, World War One, World War Two, there was likely high risk for, for head injuries. Um, you know, but the, the rate of head injury was really high. Um, the survivability of head injuries has also increased. Um, and, and so uh, a lot of head injuries that were likely not survivable, although 80% of the head injuries in the military are mild, uh, 20% are not moderate, they're not moderate and severe range. And, you know, hmm. they're, they're not moderate and severe brain injuries are much more survivable now. Um, and access to uh, really rapid acute care um, in the, in, in theater um, is better. Um, What's that so, mean? Does that mean if you get hurt and you can get to a physician quickly, you're, you're, they can do things that like make it better? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the survive, what we know, you know, the survivability of brain injury has definitely increased in the context of my career. Um, so, you know, the, there were a lot of, um, you know, Marines and soldiers and sailors and coasties who, you know, were, um, exposed to, um, head injury who may not have survived that in previous wars you know the way this war was also fought there was this increased risk for mild traumatic brain injury given that there was all these IEDs you know and what we know about mild traumatic brain injury you know there's some research coming out of UCSD the, the where I was at the VA and UCSD here in San Diego which suggests that you know if you have a mild traumatic brain injury in the context of a traumatic, you know, psychological stressor, like in the context of combat, somebody blows you up and then you're being shot at. And just before, you know, and, and, and then you throw a, a concussion in there, the risk for PTSD skyrockets. So a mild traumatic, mild traumatic brain injury is pretty survivable. The majority 
of people, you know, fully recover from a single uncomplicated mild traumatic brain injury, you know, even multiple mild, you know, traumatic brain injury or concussions, these terms are synonymous, um, you know, pre-survivable people, you know, from a neurocognitive and physical and emotional perspective, they, they recover. Um, but when, you know, that, um, that concussion is sustained in the context of a polytrauma event, wherein you're not only concussed, but maybe, you know, you have a shrapnel injury and then mm-hmm. people are, are, are shooting at you, the likelihood of, of having PTSD skyrockets and PTSD is something that can really limit the recoverability or, you know, one, it can, it can increase vulnerability to the long-term effects of a mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. And that's like you said before, which is like, if you live a high stress life, that those are some variables that can contribute to or not as well mitigate the possibility of, of having, I guess I'll call them brain issues, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, things of that nature. Yeah. And you know, that what, so one another, some other interesting research about post-traumatic stress disorder is that, you know, PTSD is associated with, with early senescence or, you know, cognitive declines that are happening faster than, than we would expect for age. Um, trauma alone, it's interesting, without PTSD. So people who've experienced trauma alone um, in, in a study um, that was done by one of my mentors, Beth Twomley, um, trauma alone is associated with poor performance on neuropsychological tests. So trauma without a history of PTSD that doesn't convert to PTSD. People Physical trauma? Are you saying physical trauma? Like if no, you- no, no, no. Like, like um, emotional trauma, like emotional trauma, like, you know, being, you know, abused or neglected or um, exposed yeah. to combat or. Yeah. Um, I remember there was when I was teaching in the Chicago public schools, I was, you know, teaching on the West side. And I remember I had heard something that was um, it was essentially saying that children living in poverty and violence like on you know many west and south neighbor south side neighborhoods in chicago are essentially <laughs> living in a war zone very similar to the our men and women's fighting overseas and that we are putting them in the same you know kind of cognitive load and stress trauma induced situations and then we're saying go learn math or now yeah, go I sit mean, down right so you're you're yeah real hard i mean real difficult stuff so trauma, emotional, stressing trauma will impact your ability to kind of perform at high cognitive levels. Oh, there's no doubt. Um, much more than even um, neurological, some neurological illnesses. I would really? much. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the effects of traumatic stress and PTSD are profound. In fact, one of the things that I miss about living in Chicago is I would like to come back to Chicago with, with my knowledge of PTSD. And I don't think I had it when I was there. Um, only because I had not worked at the the VA and, you know, but I would like to, you know, seeing what's going on in Chicago through the lens of trauma is something that, 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 that would be, you know, that I think is feasible and reasonable. Um, You know, there's some concepts like psychosomatic medicine where, you know, stress load affects your body. And we see that in, you know, these neighborhoods that have higher poverty rates, higher stress, higher violence. You know, there's higher rates of stroke and higher rates of neurodegenerative disorders that start sooner. Um, you know, so the other concept is something called epigenetics, um, wherein stressors affect, you know, your genetic coding. And some of the research on Holocaust survivors um, by Rachel Yehuda out in uh, NYU, 
um, has elucidated uh, some of that. I think Rachel Yud is also uh, affiliated with the Bronx VA. Um, fact check that. Um, but her, some of her research also, you know, shows that there's potential for sort of the, the generational transmission of traumatic stress. Um, it's interesting sort of seeing what's going on socially and, you know, getting some of the training I did in Chicago about working in diverse communities and now knowing what I know about traumatic stressors and sort of, I think it affects the way that I see the, you know, the, like the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, it helps me to experience empathy um, for that group um, in particular. So Jay, I mean, you and I met, I think we were in our 20s when we first kind of met. And so I didn't know you before that. And, and I, you know, being, you know, so close now, I've learned a lot about your upbringing and your family and stuff. So how do you, your dad was a doctor, right? And, and so how did you get into this stuff? I know like, I'm, you know me, I'm like a problem solver. So I'm looking for the evidence. Like, well, I know Jay, like you swam. Weren't you a swimmer in, in, in high school? Yeah. So not everybody swims. Swimming's fucking hard, dude. It's like one of the hardest things you to do, right? I'm like, you swim and like, I'm trying to like piece together. Like, what is it about you and your personality and your characteristics and or your upbringing that, that, you know, not everybody becomes a clinical neuropsychologist and I don't even know what that was. And before I met you, like, how did you end up doing that? What drew you, you to it? So hold on. Can I answer that question in one second? Can we talk about swimming for a second? Please do. Swimming is a hundred percent. The reason why I surf. It's like, I got to California in <laughs> 2007. We've been here. I think so. 2000, no, 2008, no, 2009, sorry, 2009. And yeah, that's right. uh, like within a week I owned a surfboard and I started powering out and it's a hundred percent. The reason why swimming in high school and, and I used to swim and I didn't like swim. You know, I would go to like the pool and swim laps in, in height in, in college when I was at UIC taking a couple of courses over summer or, after I got I graduated from Indiana, I would swim at their pools. Oh, they had a sweet pool at the gym on Roosevelt Road. But all that swimming, man, it got me ready to surf. And I feel like that opened up a big door for me. I mean, surfing is, dude, surfing is, you know, you I, yeah, I have a professional. Yeah, it changed you for sure. I remember, dude, I tell people all that. This is what I tell people about you. When I tell people about my buddy, Jay, I'm like, my buddy, Jay, his dad was like, you know, like a team doctor for like the bears. Jay grew up bleeding cubby blue. Jay was like an Italian beef. He was a Chicago guy. He moves to San Diego. I think you first got out there. You moved to La Jolla first. Was that where you guys first lived? Yeah. Didn't you dude, come visit us? Yeah, dude. Oh yeah, totally. You were in La Jolla for like three weeks and you call me one morning. You're like, Oh bro, what's up, man? Just had a sick sesh. I'm like, who is this? What'd you do with Jay? Where's my Jay Rosen? You know, dude, I went to Port. I don't want to hear it. I went to Portillo's and had an Italian beef with hot peppers (laughs) on Sunday on my way back from Palm Springs. There's two of them out here. Two. You know, you know, Jay, I think that I don't even want to hear it. <laughs> you, are, I, hear it. you are the most authentic person 
one of the most authentic people that I know. And I think the people that are really authentic, that are okay with themselves, they sit with themselves, they, they know what they love. Like some, it's not for everybody. Authenticity sometimes turns people off, but for you, man, it served you very, very well. So how did you get in to this thing, man? Like, again, like I, I barely got out of high school. how do you get into this? I, I, I like, I think that one of the, you know, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, in college, I was a history major and I'd taken a few psychology classes, but I went, you know, I guess there was experiences when I was a kid, like my mom made me volunteer with students with intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was like young, like 12, wow. 13, I used to go bowling with them. Um, so I think that was like, uh, you know, no, it was fifth grade. It was younger than that. How old are you in fifth grade? 10? 11? Fit well, Chloe's in six. Yeah, you're like 10, 11. Yeah, so my mom had me bowling with folk with kids with intellectual disabilities, I guess, you know? Um, and so, like, that, and I, I mean, I, I just re- I remember going to, like, Hebrew school and, and hearing, you know, you got to help people and heal the earth, and, you know, that concept. And, you know, Judy, I'm not a real religious guy, but, you know, that concept kind of hung with me. And then... When I was in college and I was a little bit lost, I didn't know what I wanted to study. I like to read a lot. So I studied majoring in history. Um, but I took a couple of journalism classes and one of the classes in journalism had you write like a column and that column, like had you write about one person a week or no, I chose my column. Like you could have done a sports column. You could have done like a advice column, you know, and I was at that point in time, I knew I had no advice to give. So I went and interviewed, <laughs> I like started a column where I like wrote about a different job every week. So for hmm. like 10 weeks, I had to like call up and like make an interview with somebody or no five, I think it was five interviews. You know, so I like interviewed like a city sewer and water management guy, which was awesome. Yeah. And, um, I ended up doing a guy who was a public defender and that public defender kind of, I don't know. He kind of, I remember interviewing him and, you know, he kind of left me with this this idea that, you know, he was helping people through systems and that was interesting to me. Um, After college, I went and traveled a lot and I, you know, noticed that there was different cultures and different ways of living. I lived in Israel and traveled all over the Middle East and, got some exposure to brain injuries and, and, and traumatic stressors there um, and wanted to know a little bit more about it. I remember being a little bit frustrated with politics then because when I was in Israel, the second intifada had kind of fired back on and I felt that it was like, you could like, I felt that it was really strange that, you know, I could like go up and talk to anybody on an individual basis, but then there was like this, politic that like I was Jewish and then couldn't go to Nazareth or any of these other places. So there's like um, this kind of thing that was like there was and a I was like okay loss. I gotta look at it I gotta look at it at a one to one basis. And then then I'm like okay psychology that 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 that's looking at one person's behavior and I kinda went down that road. 
That's so fascinating, man. I never knew that. I mean, I knew that you traveled, but I never knew how you got to where you are. So that's pretty cool, man. Um, but I could choose. I just kept hostile experiences. You know, I went to UIC and like, you know, worked in a lab and got a lot of good experiences there. I worked at this lab that was studying violently acquired spinal cord injuries and brain injury on the West side at Schwab hospital or oh, is that no Sinai? No Schwab rehab at Sinai. And, wow. uh, and then, and then got, dude, got very lucky. I applied to three graduate programs. Now people apply to like 60. People are probably throwing up in their mouth hearing this. And I took the GRE <laughs> once, applied to two, applied to Northwestern and DePaul for their PhD programs. Got into both. Northwestern couldn't give me any money. DePaul could. Sold on De, DePaul at a sweet uh, basketball gym. Sold. Yeah, they did. We used to play they there, did. dude. When yeah, you lived up on there. Fremont. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Also, also noteworthy. This this should not. We should not leave this podcast knowing an interesting fact about both you and I is that we both, as children, worked at Chicago style hot dog places. Which is like when I first some. I, it was like one of the first few meetings we had. Somehow that came up. I'm like, oh, this guy. This guy can uh, dress a hot dog. This guy's all right. Dude, shout out to Stashes. Shout out to you, Dog. Park. You. Ash, what's up, man? I don't know. Maybe rest in peace, Candy. Oh, dude, Yo, those cheese fries. Yeah. They use Mercs. Did they use oh, Mercs cheese Merch. for the cheese yeah, fries? Yeah, Mercs with a little, little bit of milk. You know, you yeah. grab a couple of fries for the tray. Totally. That place oh was God. not healthy. I used to have a caddy and then work there. And remember, I was a ball boy for the Bears, too. That is true. That's those right. Are my, you those are my picture. three high school jobs. You have a picture of you, I think, on the bare sidelines on your fridge when I last visited, if I remember Maybe. Correctly. I think yeah. so. I think so. Yeah, for sure. So, Jay, man, this is fascinating, you know, from from the brain and PTSD and cognitive, you know, uh, from CTE and everything that we've learned about how these things happen, things that people can do to try to avoid them and, and some of those, those practices they could do to how you ended, even ended up with this stuff. But I end each episode by asking the guests to fill in the blank. And so I'm gonna ask you to fill in the blank. Dr. Jay Rosen thinks differently about? Trusting everything I think about. Okay, man, I'll take it. I'll put it on the internet, so it must be true. Um, right. What are you trusting right now? Waves. <laughs> they always keep coming bro yeah you That's go there true, one man. day you sit there for, dude right yesterday i sat i remember i had a watch on yesterday because i had to, i surfed yesterday too i had a watch on because i had something going on um that i had to be at, be out of the water for and i don't usually wear watches surfing and man i noticed that there would be it was a particularly low swell day there wasn't like a whole lot of waves and there was long waits between each wave. And with the watch, you know, each wave was like coming a half hour at a time. You know, today I surfed, you know, and there was no, no watch. Um, but you can always count on the waves coming, man. You know, they're coming. So you said that. I looked down. I have a book here, the Tao Te Ching. I don't know if you're familiar with the Tao Te Ching. It's, you know, it's, it's the, essentially the book of Taoism. And uh, uh, lesson eight, I'm going to read this to you. This will be a great place to end. Lesson eight. The highest good is like water. 
Water gives life to 10,000 things and does not strive. It flows in places men reject, and so it is like the Tao. In dwelling, be close to the land. In meditation, go deep in the heart. In dealing with others, be gentle and kind. In speech, be true. In ruling, be just. In daily life, be competent. In action, be aware of the time and the season. No fight, no blame. There it is. Be water, I like my friend. It. Be water, my friend. Jay, man, so good. Hey, where should people go uh, online if they want to? What's like the best resource to learn more about your kind of field of work? Should they go to the your website, to the, the center's website? Where should they go? You know, I, for brain injury resources, I would check out the Defense Veterans Brain Injury, injury Consortium. And I think it's DVBIC, D-V-B-I-C.org. Um, the VA has an amazing PTSD uh, and trauma um, uh, resource uh, resources, and I think that's at ptsd.va.gov. Shout out Sonia Norman, uh, head of the PTSD core, uh, one of my mentors, head of the PTSD uh, mentorship uh, program at uh, the VA at the National Centers for PTSD up in White River Junction, Vermont. They also have great information um, for CTP. I check out like Bob Stern. Uh, and if you want to see me online, go to our, our company's website, www.neurocenter.com. Cool, man. I will put all those links in the show notes in case people want to check more of that out. But Jay, man, I think we talk like at least text multiple times a day, but talk all the time. But thanks for making time uh, to doing this, man. This was really special. And I'm so stoked we got to share uh, your expertise with the world, man. So thanks a million. Dude, bring me an Italian beef and let's go surf. <laughs> dude i'm gonna do a special episode of the time you tried to take me surfing and it's gonna be its own episode and it's gonna be the greatest episode ever because that is a story that i will take to the grave jay <laughs> you crushed bro you crushed we're getting you back we're, we're getting you back out man we're doing it Later. Surf? bro you're a surfer already you already been <laughs> thanks man so you know that if he's my friend, he's got to be pretty interesting. And I hope you found Dr. Jay Rosen as impressive, as interesting, and as down-to-earth and authentic as I find him to be. I do promise you there will be an episode of the podcast where I tell you the story of the time when Jay tried to take me surfing. But until then, please check out the show notes to learn more about things like Alzheimer's, dementia, PTSD, and the effects of trauma on our brains. Again, it's really fascinating work that Jay is doing. And I really hope for any of you that are impacted by any of these cognitive degenerative uh, diseases can really find some solace in learning more about it. As always, this episode is sponsored by our official sponsor of the Think Differently podcast, Little Foot Coffee. You know I'm a coffee nerd. I love coffee and I love supporting small businesses and helping people bring their ideas to life. And that's exactly what Little Foot Coffee is and what they do. So head on over to littlefootcoffee.com, use promo code MARK, M-A-R-C, and save 10% off your order. Or if you want to join their coffee subscription service, you can also use promo code Mark and save 20% off your first month. Head on over to littlefootcoffee.com and be a believer and believe in the small businesses just like I do. And as always, from Chicago, Illinois, this is Mark Hans challenging and inspiring you to think differently.